Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cison coming to you live from the Kill Room at Lois LLC. Uh, just to make it everybody clear, this is a Kill Room because there are no actual windows. And if I actually kill my guests, no one might ever know, except for you people. So um, hopefully, if that happens, then uh, you know my, my guest today has some kind of rescue. Uh, but I'm fairly certain it won't be because my guest today is one of my favorite people in the world. His name is Timothy Kane. He also works here at Lois. Say hi, Tim. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm hoping not to get killed today. Okay. Um, <laughs> this time last year, Tim was actually shooting paintballs at my face uh, for my birthday. Uh, so maybe I actually might have to kill you in response to what you did last year. Yeah, those were good times. That was a fun time. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, let's get into what we're doing here today, okay? So uh, we usually have one specific topic. Uh, I usually say defend from day one a billion times, and people, you know, vomit over how crazy I think uh, that is. Um, but we're actually going to do a little bit of a third department review. Uh, there's about five cases that came out about a month ago, all with crazy, crazy accident mechanisms and histories. Uh, that you just don't believe would actually happen in real life. But, of course, we are in New York workers' comp, so that means it does happen. Yeah, I think a lot of these cases still illustrate the defend from day one principle uh, in a big way. Okay, as we slip a $5 bill towards Tim for that right there. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got five cases. Uh, I labeled them based on just keywords. So do you want to start with smashed by an elevator, uh, <laughs> lead exposure, uh, gassed with pepper spray, uh, a boring jurisdictional case, and uh, injuries due to putting your foot on the brake pedal in your truck. Yeah, I think that order, just as you said, is a pretty good one. I, I, I like to, uh, to start off with something light. The elevator claim is a, an interesting one. Okay, yeah. This, this one, I, we actually might take a lot of time just, you know, talking about the, the alleged mechanism here because... Uh, I actually started laughing when I read it. So, Tim, why don't you do our readers a favor and tell them how this accident allegedly occurred? Well, the claimant alleged that while she was stepping into an elevator uh, in the building in which she worked, the doors of the elevator closed abruptly and struck her. And this caused her to feel pain uh, throughout her body, but basically in the neck and back as well as contusions to the shoulders, both shoulders, and both hips. So she really got nailed by those elevator doors. <laughs> Let, let's, let's step back from actual legal discussion here. And I want everybody to think of the last time they went through an elevator. Was it possible that when you went through the doors, that the doors continued to close literally on you? Like, there's usually sensors there that says, like, oh, there's a human coming through. Let me not hurt it and open the doors magically. It sounds like a horror movie, to be honest with you. Right, like there was, like, some purposeful, you know, horseplay maybe. Huh? Yeah, maybe someone had control of those elevator doors, someone who didn't like this one very much. But, uh, no, it sounds, from her description, it sounds like a very intense accident. And from the decision... Um, her testimony was in accordance with that description. Can I, can I just stop you right there before we even get to there again? I, I just thought of another thing because let's say the elevator doors are just, you know, you know the robots that are going to take over the world in, in 100 years. And the AI is so strong that they are going to close on you. 
the human is then going to not pull back, right? They're going to just stay there in the middle and let let themselves be smashed, right? That's what we're dealing with here, right? It sounds like it. It sounds like a very intense scenario. Um, you know, usually when I get into an elevator, I don't worry about the doors. I worry a little bit about the cable snapping or, or something like that. You know, we put a lot of faith in elevators, but uh, the doors, again, usually do have those safety sensors and uh, I don't worry too much about being dismembered by the doors themselves. Right. Okay. So go on to the, to the legal discussion. That's why we're here, Tim. <laughs> well, again, as I was saying, the claimant described her accident to the WCLJ in a similar manner. She said she was – she analogized the incident to being squeezed on each side like a jelly donut. Um, <laughs> I that just yeah right. okay and to put so, things in perspective her co-worker testified uh, who was an eyewitness to this incident and he did not describe the impact with the same degree of severity as did the claimant that's from the decision right and we also had our our good friend video surveillance because you know elevators capture the Ray Rices of the world who decide to do weird things in elevators, right? Well, yeah, that's part of the reason we're able to laugh here a little bit is that there was video evidence um, showing the actual event, and the judge was able to view that video evidence and render a decision based on all the facts that were available at the time. Um, and as it turns out, the... <laughs> The description in the decision is that the door bumped the claimant as it was closing. It did not knock her off balance or impede her entry. And in fact, the claimant appeared unfazed as she remained on the elevator using her cell phone until she departed at her destination. What a nice way of saying, I don't believe you, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it sounds like uh, the claimant may have inflated the description of the accident quite a bit in this case. And to keep in mind... Uh, how we're how the, how the appellate division is getting to that decision, right? It's it's affirming the board's broad authority to resolve factual issues based on credibility of witnesses, as long as there isn't any substantial evidence to find a contrary result, right? So they they basically said the board had good enough reason to do what it did, right? Well, indeed, and importantly, the the the, the decision indicates that the medical evidence in the case didn't match the um, incident as depicted in the surveillance videotape. And so the, the doctor's report can say whatever it says. And we've all seen plenty of doctor's reports indicating a mechanism of injury and um, you know, diagnosing all types of, of, of resulting injuries. But in this case, um, the claimant appealed uh, with the assertion that the, the board had impermissibly fashioned its own medical opinion with respect to causation. But the board panel, I'm sorry, the appellate division indicated that um, – you know, the, the surveillance videotape showed a different injury than the injury that the claimant described to her doctor. So that just goes to show you the importance of cross-examining a doctor, uh, cross-examining the claimant, and obviously the, the importance of, of providing video evidence to the board when you have it. Right, that's a good point because uh, the claimant's doctor, and in a lot of cases, rightfully so, is going to take the history as reported to him or her as fact, and that's going to derive or it's going to result in the C, the causal relationship opinion right so you you have an easier time uh denying the history as opposed to denying the causal relationship opinion 
And I think what the, the employer did in this case by essentially pr- producing surveillance video of, uh, I guess, an incident that was contrary to what the claimant stated renders the causal relationship opinion of the doctors invalid. Yeah, exactly. So interesting case. So that that's uh, Williams versus New York State of New York State Office of Disability and Assistance. Uh, it is was decided February 15th. Actually, they all are decided on February 15th. Uh, there's no uh, site for it other than the Lexus reporters, uh, but if you are interested in that decision, it will be published soon. Okay, one down, four to go, Tim. Uh, do you want to go with lead exposure, pepper spray, jurisdiction, or the foot break? Um... Let's go with lead exposure. Okay, staying on track. Um, I like this one actually because it gives rise to a essentially a, an action on the claimant on a different case, right? So something that allows us to use our predictive skills and prepare clients for what can happen down the road even when we are successful. So why don't you take um, a couple seconds to explain to our audience what happened in this case? Well, the claimant has two workers' compensation claims. The first is an Article 8A claim for um, uh, – it's an established claim for depression, asthma, rhinitis, uh, uh, esophageal reflux disease, and PTSD uh, resulting to the World Trade Center disaster. Um, but he kept working, and um, he also you – know, he was working for a company called Abitec Industries – and he was removing asbestos, and he um, had apparently lead exposure. And at any rate, he filed a second claim for occupational lead exposure. So there's two separate claims here. Right. So what the claimant did is essentially filed a claim for lost time on the lead exposure claim, right? And after a trial, the judge ruled that there was no causally related loss of earnings, and the claimant appealed to the appellate division. And what the appellate division found is that there was just a lack of contemporaneous medical demonstrating that the claimant's inability to continue working was caused by the lead exposure. And the smoking gun in this case was a treating physician had essentially rendered him partially disabled and but released him to work so long as he avoided lead exposure, right? So in, in reviewing that medical report, the board's decision to find no causally related loss of earnings was due to the fact that the own treating doctor says, yeah, you can work. You just, you know, you can't work near lead exposure. I mean, how many jobs are there where you can avoid lead exposure? I, I avoid lead exposure every day. What about you, Tim? I do my very best. Hopefully, I mean, right? right? Right. Hopefully. We don't know. We don't know, but most likely. Most jobs do not involve lead exposure. But what I thought was really interesting in this case is that there were references to the fact that the claimant's disability was actually due to his illness uh, that was established on the 8A claim. And so I wonder whether the claimant could just refile for benefits under the, the earlier claim. Yeah, we were certainly talking about this because, you know, when one road closes, uh, another one opens for a claimant, especially one with multiple claims, right? So uh, let's say he files for lost time on the World Trade Center Article 8A claim. My defense to that would be that he continued to work, 
and then bring in other other medical doctors to say, to say that it's a result of the lead exposure? I mean, that's the theory that we would be dealing with here is that we would have to bring in claims from the other reports in the other claim and then I, I you know you might be actually be at a loss on the article a, a claim if he's able to prove that he's out of work to that one right? right and there may have been a strategic reason to file for lost time under the later claim having to do with you know his rate of pay his AWW or the max rate at the time um, but again I I, I would have I would expect him to refile for lost time under the 8a claim you would have uh, some material to work with in terms of, of the cross-examination of the doctors that you've already got, but it looks like the, the medical evidence that was adduced at this trial leaned towards um, causation to the earlier claims. So. Right, and, and you know, I guess typically with the uh, carriers being so likely apart in terms of period of time, right, if you're talking about a carrier who is responsible for an employer between uh, 2001 and 2002 versus a 2012 occupational claim, you're probably not going to be the same carrier who's defending both claims. I think in this case they were just both traveling because there was a question of whether the uh, lost time was as a result of one, the other, or neither. And uh, it's interesting that this de- this decision only talks about the uh, lost time for the occupational claim. Correct. Yeah. So – leaves it open as to what's going to happen in the future. Maybe we'll talk about this same case someday down the road. Right, right. And again, uh, it's another unpublished opinion, so uh, if we do have uh, information on that, we can give it to you. That's two down. So we, we went with uh, lead exposure and um, being smashed by an elevator that is similar to a jelly donut. Uh, that We're left with uh, a pepper spray case, uh, a jurisdiction case that talks about just, you know, like deliveries, and, uh, you know, I guess using the, the brake pedal in your truck. Um, Want to talk about pepper spray? Sure. Why not? Um, pepper spray. Uh, I, this accident, uh, the claimant was a pharmacist that was working at a prison when she was accidentally exposed to pepper spray that a guard was using to subdue an inmate. Right. So like think about it was like what like a incidental contact of like a spray that's being directed at someone else and getting into your eyes. Right? That's what we're dealing with. And she's alleging that she got dizzy and her she experienced chest tightness. Uh and she filed a claim. Uh the board ruled that there was no causal relationship between uh the claimants pepper spray incident and her injuries because she had pre-existing fibromyalgia that wasn't exacerbated. Think about that, Tim. I want to get before a judge that is going to say that there was no ex- exacerbation. Where's that judge? <laughs> Pretty rare, I think. Um, but the judge made that decision based on the medical evidence and the board um, affirmed um, the board credited the opinion of, of the IME doctor who uh, felt that it was reasonable that there was no, you know, to, th- his opinion was reasonable. There was no medical cause of fibromyalgia and the symptoms are, are fleeting and, and that, you know, basically this woman's uh, claim was unsubstantiated. I think you're right on that, Tim. Uh, we had five medical doctors who testified in this case 
And there seemed to be a conflict as to each of the issues that led to where we were at, like whether it's the history of the pre-existing fibromyalgia that led to it or another doctor saying that it was exacerbated, but I don't know if it was based on the pepper spray uh, versus another doctor who would say there really is no medical cause for fibromyalgia. So uh, I think putting all those discrepancies into the record really helped the defense in this side because at the end, the appellate division basically affirmed the board's decision to credit uh, Dr. Chatpar's opinion, who's a rheumatologist, he, you know, he basically said there, there's no known cause of fibromyalgia and the symptoms are fleeting and could vary, right? So without reaching that reasonable degree of medical certainty that we hear time and time again, the claimant's stuck in a position where, uh, you know, the voluminous medical opinions in the record do not help her. Right. And the reason is that the board has the authority to weigh conflicting medical testimony and credit the opinion over one expert, uh, one over the other. Um, in this case, Dr. Chatpar's testimony um, was deemed to be uh, credible, whereas those four other doctors uh, were deemed to be uh, not compelling and equivocal and based on the claimant's own self-reporting. So kind of like the elevator case, even though the claimant had one version of things, um, you know, the substantial evidence, whether it be video evidence or in this case the IME doctor's testimony, uh, was in favor of of disallowing the claim. Right. Okay. Let's move on to the jurisdictional claim. Um, we have a case where a claimant was hired by a Pennsylvania employer, and this employer uh, essentially contracted with other parties to deliver goods across uh, the entire country. And the claimant filed for New York workers' compensation benefits, and naturally the Pennsylvania employer denied it because they said, hey, we don't do business in New York, right? There are no significant contacts. Uh, but as we see in a lot of these jurisdictional cases, especially in New York, uh, the bar isn't as, l as high as you, you would think the words sufficient and significant really are, right? Sufficient and significant contacts really just allow the claimant to produce a, enough proof that the venue he seeks is the right one. And I go back and forth on it because if, if the guy lives in New York and he files in New York, we don't want to force him to travel across a different state and file a claim in Pennsylvania, right? I think this, this situation actually makes sense. Uh, and I, I guess I'm jumping the gun a little bit here because essentially the board ruled that jurisdiction applied in New York and the appellate division affirmed. But, I mean, what do you think about that, Tim? Just, just theoretically, uh, we get these jurisdictional cases um, that have a lot worse significant context, but it's tough to really deny a claim and have it eventually be disallowed on jurisdictional grounds when the, the claimant does live in New York, and that's the easiest avenue for him to pursue benefits. Right. The claimant's residence is certainly not the only factor, and in fact, the decision we're looking at now lists uh, a huge number of, of the factors that the board looks at. Um, oh, right, right. I didn't want to make everybody think that was the only factor, but yes, go on. Right, so, but the board, I think it's fair to say that the, the, the board wants to find jurisdiction. Um, the board itself certainly does not want to make it harder for someone to file a claim in New York, um, and that's why it's important that defense counsel goes out and speaks to the employer, to the carrier, and gets as much information as possible and tries to, um, you know, 
develop the record as fully as possible on, on whether the, the balance of the contacts favor the other state or favor New York. Um, but in this case, um, it's important to, to note that while not every factor favored New York jurisdiction, there were apparently sufficient contacts, and that was deemed to be substantial evidence enough that the decision was not going to be disturbed on appeal. Right. So, so your defend from day one scenario is, you know, finding out where the employee was hired, right? He might not necessarily be hired in New York. Uh, you know, are there other locales that the claimant uh, goes to? Uh, d- is there a second residence or does the employer furnish a place uh, for the claimant to go to even after making deliveries out of state? Uh, it's a whole wide range of facts that we can investigate uh, to make those jurisdictional defenses appropriate. Uh, but like you said, Tim, the third department affirmed the board's uh, decision here because there was substantial evidence, which you know is the theme here today. Substantial evidence existing to affirm a decision from the board. Okay, so that case was Galster versus Keene Transportation. Uh, and our last one is DuPont versus Quality Distribution, uh, another one of my favorite accident histories. We have a truck driver... Uh, whose truck was cut off on the highway because a passenger vehicle kind of, I guess, swerved in front of him or changed lanes in front of him. And it caused the driver to decelerate approximately 5 to 10 miles per hour. Think about how slow that is, right? How lightly you're tapping the brake pedal, right? Like, I, I Think about that. And then because of this slow deceleration... Some liquid in his car surged forward, literal quotes, surged forward, knocking the claimant forward and then back into his seat. And then, of course, I felt a pop in my neck. I now have a work accident. Right. I find it a little hard to believe that anybody driving, you know, any truck driver uh, wouldn't be decelerating 5 to 10 miles per hour basically on a regular basis throughout every single run. Uh, I think we, most of us drive and, uh, and you know, slowing down um, 5 to 10 miles per hour doesn't sound terribly significant when you, you know, read it, um, but apparently it was sufficient to, to cause the claim to be established. Right, and I think we don't have, you know, we don't have the trial transcripts here. We just have the appellate division decision. Uh, so it's certainly an interesting case to really delve into the facts if we could. Uh, But what we do know is that the carrier's defense was the production of these vehicle log records that they argued was inconsistent with this deceleration of 5 to 10 miles an hour. And what these log reports eventually showed was that the software of the truck's onboard computer would only register a stop if the deceleration was 9 miles per hour or more, right? 9 miles per hour in the course of one second. So that sounds fairly significant. Oh, yeah. So, like, that means you're you're actually putting your foot on, like, as a sudden stop. That makes sense, right? So a deceleration of 5 to 10 miles per hour, as alleged by the claimant, versus log records that show that a sudden stop is only registered— if it's nine miles per hour in one second, right? And the theory behind that is if the truck's onboard computer didn't register the sudden stop, then the claimant's history of, you know, 
the suddenness of the deceleration resulting in a neck injury would kind of be thrown out the window, right? If the if the onboard computer showed that it didn't happen. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's interesting here that you have the claimant testifying. You actually have an expert regarding the, the software that was on the truck testifying. And the the diagnostic data from the, the software itself all in play. And the judge still found that the claimant was the most credible um, witness involved in the entire, you know, uh, proceeding. Right. Again, again, uh, you know, I would love to read that trial transcript. You know, I want to ask the claimant, how long did it take for him to decelerate five to ten miles? If, if I can get him, I could have gotten him on cross to testify, oh, what, a couple of seconds? If I can say, okay, you decelerated in two to three seconds, that would take him out of the onboard uh, uh, truck system. And that would actually prove that the history was incorrect. But the problem was, or at least what we know, right? What we know is that the log reports and the expert witness proved that it would have to be a nine-mile-per-hour deceleration in one second. But it was almost like saying you didn't prove that the claimant was incorrect. You didn't prove a negative, that the claimant didn't decelerate within that time frame, the one-second time frame, at five to ten miles per hour. So, again, like, I would love to see that trial transcript, but it could just be a case of, hey, the claimant was more credible than an expert witness on the software of the truck. Yeah, and to clarify here, the judge, the, the WCLJ, actually did disallow the claim, um, but it was the, the board panel that looked at that very transcript and, and reversed and established the claim for the low back and the neck. Right, so we have a, a, a board decision despite a law judge's decision as the arbiter of the facts, reversing the, the issue, and the third department finding that there was substantial evidence to credit the board instead of the law judge. And that's really where we're at with these five appellate division claims, uh, cases, not claims, uh, from last month. We have, whether it's a disallowance or an establishment of the case, uh, or if it's a specific finding regarding lost time and whether it's causally related it's very difficult to prove that there that the board didn't have substantial evidence to find uh, for the claimant or the employer, right? It's very hard to get the appellate division to reverse on that basis, right? I would say so. Uh, you know, one thing I, I wonder about this uh, truck driver case is how much did it play into it that the IME, um, despite three prior back surgeries, uh, did concede a cause-related uh, injury due to that that slowing down incident. So you know that's got to be part of the picture there. That's a situation where you know no matter how good of a defense you have, when you go in with an IME that concedes, that that's something you need to contend with. Uh, and I feel like that you know that certainly played into that finding of substantial evidence. That's a good point. I mean, you know, if you feel like you have a factual defense, you know, and sometimes uh, a judge will look at an IME and and find that the concession of of causal relationship. Uh, is tantamount to establishing the case. Uh, so that's certainly a strategic consideration that we make from time to time, whether or not to get an IME. Um, I think I, I wouldn't fault the carrier in this matter if he had three prior back surgeries, though. You know, you would you would expect that uh, a reasonable doctor would find that, uh, one, the history doesn't make sense with what you're saying, and even even though you may have these injuries, it's probably as a result of those three prior back surgeries. Right, and I think it's also reasonable to deny a claim where the mechanism of injury is 
slowing down in your truck. Um, you know, it, it's it. I think that's part of the reason the the judge at the trial level disallowed the claim. Um, and you know, I'm not sure I, I I really agree with what the board panel did here in in reversing this and establishing it. But I think it it goes towards the you know the overall mission of the board to uh, you know look out for injured workers, and and it's something that we have to contend with as as defense counsel. Um, but again, it's always in your best interest to uh, to get as much information as you can to support your defense. And, you, you, know, you mean defend from day one? Defend from day one. That's what right. I'm saying. So I think that's really the theme that we wanted to really approach here, right, is you know, an astute defense, uh, although it may not always win, is important to win the cases that you can win, right? The, one, the claims that really are legitimately denied, for those to survive – uh, you know, claimant's testimony, a claimant's doctor's testimony, uh, and the law, which is primarily construed in the claimant's favor, we need to be extremely proactive in fighting these claims from the outset. And I think that's one of the things that we do well here. Uh, so I don't want everybody to all of a sudden think that these appellate division options are a good last resort, right? There's still a practical reason not to appeal cases that we've lost, right? We don't, we can't withhold any benefits. We have to pay pursuant to a board panel decision against us. And going to the appellate division isn't the same as filing an appeal with the board, right? It takes uh, a lot of time, a lot of uh, legal expenses to get there and get the decision that you want. And to supplement that, only 12% of cases filed to the third department last year were either reversed or remanded, right? So only 12% uh, of cases uh, applied to this reversible error standard that the third department said the board was wrong. So in 88% of these uh, cases being filed, the board was held to have made a correct decision. And because they have the board uh, broad dis- discretion to make those findings, we have to be really strategic about picking the cases that we're going up to the appellate division about. Right. And, you you know, it's easy to, to, to laugh at some of them when, you know, particularly when they're not your own case, but certainly when you're faced with some of these uh, factual situations, um, you have to bear in mind that you have to, you know, do your best to get the proper outcome uh, at the trial level and at the uh, the appeal level, um, you know, at the board panel appeal level, because um, an, an appeal to the appellate division is probably a bit of a long shot. Right. And so, uh, again, we we always, always, always make sure that when we're going there, it's for the right reasons. Uh, it has to actually help you. And, and not hurt your stance in the case because the litigation of the workers' comp claim is going to be going on even while the, the case is pending before the appellate division. There's, you know, there's not going to be a judge who's going to stay uh, the complete proceedings of every issue just because you file an appellate division motion. Um, and, and these five cases are, are good examples of the fact that even when you find a case to go up there, uh, it's, it's going to be tough to, to succeed at that level. I think that's it for us today, uh, Tim. Uh, you survived the kill room, um, so I'm, I'm glad. I think I'm guessing that you're very glad as well. Yes, I'm glad too. Uh, till next month, this is the March edition of the Third Fridays podcast with Christian Cezanne. I thank Tim Kane for coming on, and to everyone else, please defend from day one. <laughs>